we're a talky group of people. That's good. That's a sign of a healthy church. All right, we're settled down. Everybody's got all the bugs out. I don't know how long I'm going um, to how long I'm going to talk for. I practiced um, a lot, and uh, it's short, which is never a bad thing. But um, you know, we've got food to get down to, so let's get, let's get to this. Good. Again, okay, short and sweet. Well, again, good morning. Um, it is a privilege to get to stand up here and speak with you this morning. It is not something that uh, we take lightly. Um, Jeremy, I called him this morning and prayed over me um, and had a pastor um, that he talked about last week, John Brassat from Living Room Church. He happened to be on his way to his church this morning and swung in and um, had heard that we had um, three salvations last week and just wanted to come and um, give Jeremy a hug and pray for him. And I said, well, he's not here, but you can please do that for me. And he did, um, which is cool, the unity that is happening um, in this valley. And so um, we're excited for what God's going to do this morning. And so thank you for giving me the privilege to stand before you and speak this morning. Um, it's been a really great series in Philippians. This is the last part, and we're going to jump into um, a new series next week. Um, you see in the hallway out there, it's called I Have Decided and it's going to be a great series, but we'll finish up here in Philippians. Um, I just wanted to check in. How many people are doing, thank you, doing the 30-day prayer challenge? Um, some of you are like, what? Uh, no, I remember talking about it last week and tucked it into my Bible, and that's where it stayed. Um, it's been interesting. Um, I've been posting it on the website, or on the Facebook page, so if you're a part of Facebook World, you can check in with that every um, every day, but it's been really good. Um, someone pointed out, it's not really a prayer challenge necessarily, but I disagree because the things that it's talking about, you have to really pray in order to do it. And so it's kind of a dual thing. Um, I really enjoyed day number two. Um, it said, I don't know if you guys remember this. It said, send a voice, text mail, email, voicemail, or Facebook message of encouragement. And I was like, oh, that's good. And it goes on to say, to at least two people you know who don't like you or almost certainly will not respond. And so I read that the day two morning and I waited all day. And I am glad to report no one messaged me. So I think that I'm doing pretty good. I think I'm likable because no one's you know, reached out to me because they don't like me, so that's good. All right, well, let's, let's jump into Philippians. We're gonna be in Philippians four um, today. And I found it interesting as I was studying and praying this week, that Philippians is really considered to some a thank you note, that it's Paul's thank you note. And I thought that was an interesting um, concept. Um, it's, as you kind of look through it as we've finished up, I, I kind of see how that is. It's very personal. It's full of love and appreciation. Um, it's very upbeat and positive and full of encouragement, just like a good thank you note should be. Um, I've really come to appreciate a good thank you note. Um, now, my mom is here this morning. Hi, mom. Thank you for coming. Um, she is probably shocked to hear me say that I like a good thank you note because when Jeremy and I were married um, almost 20 years ago next month, um, woohoo! Woo <laughs> um, I know there's like a lot of you have been married 50 plus years, and so thank you for that bar being set high that Jeremy and I can, um, you know, 
set our eyes to and keep going. But 20 years, we're excited for that. But 20 years ago, um, we had a fabulous wedding. It was kind of a large wedding, about 250 people. Um, we had a great time, and of course, they loved us through bringing us gifts. And so being raised by a good mama, um, I was expected to handwrite a very thoughtful thank you note for all of those that brought us um, wedding gifts. And I failed completely. Now, my mom got us all the addresses. She ordered thank you notes that matched our wedding invitations. She set me up for success. I, however, hated the idea of thank you notes. It was daunting, it was overwhelming. And so I just kept putting her off and putting her off. And I still think like five years into our marriage, I was like, I'll get to it, I'll get to it. Well, you know, we've unpacked now, we're pretty much settled. Um, and I came across a box of our thank you notes tucked in a box that we've moved with us for the last 20 years. So maybe somebody will randomly get a thank you note um, 20 years later, we'll see. <laughs> uh, that's right. But don't you appreciate, and I have come to appreciate, a very, um, a handwritten thank you note. It shows love and appreciation. It shows that that person took the time to sit down and think of you um, and respond to whatever it is that they're thanking you for. Um, I have a really good friend from California, um, and immediately when we moved um, to my parents in Oregon before we moved here, she began sending me little notes of encouragement, little thank you notes, little cards and such. And sometimes she would cut out a little article from a magazine or newspaper that she thought I would enjoy reading. Sometimes she'd tuck a little gift card inside to a favorite coffee place. But most of the time, it's just her words of encouragement. She's extremely witty, so a lot of times um, it's something funny. But she's an extremely busy person. And so for her to take the time to handwrite me a note means the world to me. And it makes me excited to go to and check my mail instead of love letters from our, you know, creditors or whatever you want to say that. Um, it's exciting to find one of those handwritten letters. And so as we kind of dive back into Philippians, just kind of be thinking about Paul sitting where he's sitting, writing a thank you note to some people who over the years have loved, supported, and encouraged him. So this morning, our passage is in chapter 4. It's verse 10, verses 10 through 23. <clears throat> We're going to pray before we get started, so let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning, and we pray for your revelation as we dig into your word. Lord, give us wisdom to see and hear from you in a fresh and new way. Help us to find practical ways to live out your words. We ask you to go before us, Lord, and may you be blessed by all we do and all we say here today. Amen. All right, so verse 10 says this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I am speaking of being, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourself know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit 
that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So our big idea for this week, if you're taking notes on the back of your bulletin there, the big idea to take away from is this. We must strive for contentment. We must strive for contentment. Now, the last um, bit of Philippians that we just read, it is so rich. There are so many things that we could dive into, but I really felt like what the Lord was bringing out to me specifically was verses 11 through 13 and talking about contentment. In verse 11, Paul begins to explain to his friends that he has learned one of the greatest lessons in life. He has learned contentment. Now, what do you think of when I say the word contentment? Do you maybe picture yourself at a fancy gourmet deal, gourmet meal restaurant, having just finished a fantastic meal, kind of sitting back in your chair, rubbing your belly a little bit, like that content. Or maybe you picture yourself sitting on a beach somewhere with a Hawaiian breeze flowing by, watching a beautiful sunset. That can also be contentment. But I think that Paul goes on to explain that this contentment is so much deeper. He has wrestled through want and need, and he's come out the other side a changed man. Our first point this morning is this. Contentment is not natural. Contentment is not natural. Do you see how Paul has said, I have learned, not I was born with, this amazing gift of contentment. No, specifically he says, I have learned, meaning contentment is not our natural way of being. It is something we have to work for, wrestle with, and strive for. Wouldn't you agree that as humans, we attempt to get more, have more, be more, whether it's better jobs, clothes, cars, phones, houses, that we are consumers. We're always looking for the next best thing. Look at TV commercials, okay, good example. Commercials are designed to create a need. It's the whole point of an ad. Usually they create or they strive to create a need that you didn't even know you had. Yeah, so you're, picture this, you're minding your own business, you're watching the evening news, when all of a sudden a commercial comes on for a steak dinner, juicy steak dinner, okay? All of a sudden, you can't get that out of your mind. You want that steak dinner. No, you need that steak dinner. No, you deserve that steak dinner. It just rolls that way. Even kids at a young age can get seduced by commercials. Um, in our household, Zoe is allowed to watch two TVs, two TV channels, Disney Junior or Nick Junior. It's all geared towards kids. However, the commercials are also geared towards kids. Um, I don't know how many of you remember or ever experienced your kids coming to you or grandkids coming to you 
I need, I, I, I need, I really, really, really want, I can't live without this. Well, um, a couple, I guess it was this last Christmas, um, Zoe came to Jeremy and I, and she just begged us for this toy. Please, please, please. I really want it. It can be my only toy. I will love it forever. And we gave in, we did. And if any of you have seen the Flip-A-Zoo, I don't know if you're familiar with this animal, stuffed animal, it's two animals in one. Zoe could right now come forward and sing the jingle to you. She has seen it so many times. Um, she opened it on Christmas morning and I don't think she's played with it since. So thank you commercials and what you have imparted in her. But it was a good lesson. We were able to talk about um, what you want sometimes versus what you need. Um, and so, but I just think it's so at a young age, commercials are targeting kids. Um, you know, <laughs> we have to be just really careful of what we take in. You know, um, I don't know how many of you have Netflix, but Jeremy and I watch a lot of Netflix and we do that because there is no commercials that we can kind of control what's coming into our house. And so Netflix has been a really good thing. Um, if we're gonna watch something, then that's just a really good way for us to kind of block out some of the other crazy things that are happening. All right, well, let's move on to point number two. Point number two is this, the enemy of contentment is comparison. A lot of nods right now. The enemy of contentment is comparison. Well, I found one of the definitions of comparison is this, the examination of two or more items to establish similarities or dissimilarities. In other words, you start looking around at your stuff and at my stuff. What do you have? What do I have? What's the same? What's more? All right, and it's pretty easy to see where I'm going with this, but I think it's important to look at comparison because most of us, to some degree, struggle with this, the keeping up with the Joneses mentality. Let's take a little survey, okay? You don't have to raise your hands, but just kind of be thinking in your head um, how many of us kind of don't even realize that we're doing this. So you pull up to a stoplight, you look around to see what everybody else is driving. Oh, look at that new 2017 fill in the blank sitting next to me. Okay, you're driving down the road, minding your own business in a new neighborhood, and you start looking at the houses and the yards and the garages. Oh, look what they, look what the neighbors just did. They just added, okay. Or maybe you're sitting at work at lunchtime listening to some friends talk about the vacations that they're about to take or they just came back from. We kind of, it's just kind of a part of our lives. We just kind of maybe don't even realize the comparison there. I mean, we can go back to Cain and Abel. Comparisons led to murder. So we have a long history with comparisons. So how do we kill the comparison compulsion? Well, stop looking around and start looking up. When we look around at what everyone else has or is doing, we lose our focus. Our pride rears its ugly head and whispers, you deserve that. Instead, we need to look at all that God has given us. Be reminded that we live in one of the wealthiest nations on the planet. We all have more than enough food, clothes, shelter, and friends. So we need to take stock and learn to be grateful for the things that we already have. Point number three 
Contentment is a choice. Contentment is a choice. Charles Swindoll has been credited with saying that life is 10% what happens to us and 90% how we react to it. Just let that sink in for a minute. We like to say that things happen to us, but we choose how we react to those things that are coming at us. Let's look at our main text again, picking up in verse 12. It says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In, every, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Notice how Paul isn't just talking about lacking in need here. He throws in the other side of the scale of abundance and plenty. I would say we tend to think that we would be content or satisfied if we had just a little bit more. Some of us a lot more, but for the most part, everyone say if we just had a little bit more. But if we really stop to think about those that are satisfied, would you, would you maybe, the people that you can think of that maybe have a little bit more than you, would you hold their lives up to the world and say, yes, they have a bigger car, a better job, a big house, they take vacations, look at their amazing marriage and their great kids. Not always, that's not always the case. Because we, we all know someone that by the world standards has it all, but their lives don't necessarily look like that. They're far from perfect. I mean, think about the people who win the lottery, okay? Which is supposed to be played for entertainment purposes only. But I know a lot of people that that is their retirement that they're playing for. Um, I read that over 70% of lottery winners will lose their winnings within a few years. Most say that they wish they had never won and that it was only a superficial satisfaction. Doesn't really sound like more is always better, does it? You see, when we are lacking or have need, it's easy to take our eyes off of God and start looking around and being worried. But when we have abundance, we often forget our need of God as we focus on all of the things that we have. So we have the choice, whether in abundance or in need, of how we view our situation. Are you a glass half empty person or a glass half full person? There's a fantastic book that I've come across a couple years ago, um, written by an author, her name is Anne Voskamp, and the book is entitled um, 1,000 Gifts. Um, it is a fantastic book some of you have nodded, maybe you're familiar with the book, um, because it, the whole book is about the everyday little things already in our lives that are blessings to us, that are gifts from God. And so the book goes on to help us recognize all of those little things, um, because one of the first steps to contentment is thanksgiving and gratitude. Would you agree? Do you think that's a good first step? When you start to look at yourself of what you have already, and you start to count those blessings, count those gifts from God, we seem really rich. And all of a sudden, it doesn't really matter so much what's happening over here, what's happening over here, because we truly have a grateful and thankful heart. Now, I want to take a moment to talk about how control can be the arch nemesis to contentment. And I'm specifically talking about our need to control. Control our environment, control those around us. Um, and let me tell you that this is one of those times where Jeremy talked about last week, 
when we're pointing this way out to you and there's three fingers pointing back to me because this is an area um, that God is definitely working on. Um, I will tell you a not-so-secret secret about me. I am a recovering control freak. Um, some days are good. Some days are not so good. But um, the last couple of years, God has really been giving me opportunity to release some things. Um, because most of control is about mistrust and fear. That's kind of the root. And so he's given me opportunities to trust and to believe. Um, it was a big move to go from California and move into the unknown when we moved to Oregon. We didn't have anything. And as someone who makes lists incessantly, um, who likes to control everything, I like to calendar things way out, to not have any idea, not only where we were gonna be, what church God was gonna call us to, but we now have a daughter who this impacted. Where was she gonna go to school? What was she gonna have friends? You know, different things like that. And so the control freak in me freaked out a lot. And so I was able to just really press in. Um, I had a really good friend who um, shared the Philippians that Jeremy talked about last week. Um, and I just hung on to that. And um, it's, there's good days and there's bad days. <laughs> But trusting is the best thing to um, letting go of some of that. You know, it's okay to be a strong leader. I'm not talking against that at all. You know, someone who has vision, who can come into a situation and take charge. Um, but when we feel like our vision is the only vision or our way is the only way, that's not necessarily um, a good place to be. Um, finding contentment for me has really been about stepping back and listening to what others have to say um, and taking more of a team approach. I know um, for a lot of you watching Jeremy and I kind of come in and navigate everything, um, you know, what are we gonna be doing next? Where, where are we going here? Where are we going? And both of us really, we've talked with the council a lot, we've talked with a lot of you. Um, this is a team, you know, this is not, Jeremy doesn't come in as a dictator and start saying how it's, it's supposed to be. We, this is our church, this is where God has called us. And so for some of you, that's been difficult because you're used to maybe in your life, someone, this is what you do. This is what's going to happen next. Um, and I just want to thank you for kind of allowing us to gather everybody and sort of move forward together. Um, it's helping us. It's helping us get to know you. And we really appreciate that, um, especially when there's some subtle changes taking place and not so subtle changes. Um, and I know that's difficult. You know, you all have been here as a family or years, I could say decades, um, and things are the way they've been. And you have really been open to change. You have been embracing change. I mean, we have two giant black things hanging right here um, that are to some probably unsightly and it's kind of thrown you off a little bit. But we thank you for showing up and seeing where God's gonna lead us. Um, as a church family, some good things are gonna happen. Um, Jeremy and I take a lot of time we come down here and we walk the sanctuary, we walk the building and we pray for God's insight, for God to move. What, what should we do? Should we go left, right, or stay in the middle? Um, things are deliberate. They're on purpose because we feel like that's where God's calling us to be. So I just wanted to take a moment to discuss that because it's hard. You know, two um, outsiders have shown up and really shaken the tree, but you have met us with Yes, let's do this. This is good. Maybe secretly behind doors, you are praying, and that's good because we need that. 
but um, good things are going to happen. Sometimes God needs to prune back or shake some stuff up for the new fruit to be able to be um, to come out. And so, okay, enough about that. We're just thankful that we're going through this season. And to the, my fellow um, controllers, um, may you find peace in what's happening and contentment. All right, so our last point is this. Contentment is rooted in our eternity. Contentment is rooted in our eternity. So I think as we look at the last little bit of, the last little bit of this book of Philippians, um, we need to remember that Paul was Saul first. He was one of the Jews' best and brightest from a very well-regarded family, a Roman citizen, a scholar. He was kind of like the man. Um, Paul knew abundance in his life, where he walked. He just had power. He had that control. And by the time that Paul is penning this thank you note in chains, imprisoned, I would say that he has seen both sides of plenty and want. He knows what he speaks about when he declares that. So how is he able to say in the midst of everything that he is content? Well, we don't have to look any further than verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So let's break this down just a little bit. Paul can say this simple sentence because he knows in the depths of his heart, in the depths of his soul, who he belongs to. He has learned through the peaks and the valleys of his life who God is to him personally and intimately. Paul had figured out that if you choose to love and serve God, by loving and serving people, that that's when we find contentment. Whether in hardship or luxury, it's not really about our personal reaction, but it's more about how God will display his overwhelming ability through us and in us, if we will let him. Remember, um, just in, in that verse 13, how he says, I can do all things through him. It's not because of Paul. It's not because Paul was so amazing. It's because of Jesus Christ. In our pursuit of Christ, contentment follows. If we try and, I'm going to be content, I'm going to seek after contentment, I'm going to strive for contentment, it's all about me. But if we are seeking after Christ, if we're following after Christ, if we're pressing into Christ, then contentment just flows. I believe that Paul absolutely believed, as we're called to, that he knows that Christ is who he says he is. That God has a plan and a purpose for us and that we must allow him to be our savior. To live a contented life, we must strive to understand the depths of God's love for us and the enormous sacrifice that he made for us. Just coming off of Easter and being reminded of what the cross means, there's so many people in the world 
that don't understand what this symbol is to a Jesus person. I mean, that's the place that we killed Jesus. Why would we hang it up in our church? Why would we wear it around our necks? Because it's not the place we killed Jesus. It is the instrument that the world used that then Jesus overcame. And so now we look at that symbol and it is the hope. It is our symbol that we can look at and be reminded that when he put his hands on it, that's how much he loved us. And we take something that the world wanted for bad and we can look at it and find our hope and our peace in that. Contentment is an inner, it's an inner sense of rest and peace that comes from being right with God and knowing that he is in control of what happens to us, that he is in control. Whether it sunshines on us or it rains on us, he is in control. In the depths of the valleys, when you cannot see the light, and when you're at the top of the mountains basking in the light, he is in control. Contentment is a byproduct of our faithfulness to Christ. So if you come this morning with an unrested soul, then grab a hold of Jesus because that is where you are going to find contentment and peace. Let's set your stuff aside. We're going to pray. Bow your heads with me. Um, if you are here this morning and you have never asked Jesus, and you have never asked Jesus, 